We're reading today Acts 11, 1 through 18. At the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you'll respond with thanks be to God. Now the apostles and their brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I, begin to sp- as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, I don't know how many of you guys like to read, um, how many of you guys are readers, but there's a book, it's called The, the Screwtape Letters. Uh, many of you have probably heard of this book, it's written by C.S. Lewis, um, and in this book there are two demons, uh, two demons, there's an uncle demon and a nephew demon. Um, the uncle's name is Screwtape and the nephew's name is Wormwood. And basically, throughout this book, these two demons correspond with one another as Screwtape mentors Wormwood on effective strategies for tempting the human being that was assigned to him and making sure that he continues on a steady path towards damnation. And one correspondence, Screwtape speaks about church disunity church disunity being an effective stratagem to accomplish their demonic and evil purposes. The screw tape writes this to Wormwood. You can follow along with me on the screen. I think I warned you before 
that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't that doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. No, the real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion and all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities. We have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other essentials. Namely, that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think they could not fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself, lest the weak conscience of his high brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high one refraining from these exercises, lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it would have been, but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the Christian church might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Church disunity is no joke. Uh, it's, It's no laughing matter. It's nothing to be dismissed. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Why? Because not only is an ununited church an ineffective church, and that seems very plain, but an ununited church taints the very message and nature of the gospel and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. An ununited church also defies the very nature of our God, who is both triune and one. This is exactly why Satan and those who are opposed to God and God's people would love nothing more than to see disunity in the church. And they will stop at nothing to achieve it. They will sow bitter roots in our hearts over these lesser things whether you like to say mass or holy communion and and food and candles and clothes, things like these, they will take and they will ramp them up to produce malice in the church. Church disunity is is no joke. We are going through the book of Acts and we have reached a major point of tension within the book, which is essentially how our followers of Jesus supposed to relate to the the Jewish religion? How are followers of Jesus supposed to relate to the Jewish religion, which is Judaism? And and how are Jewish followers of Jesus supposed to relate to Gentile followers of Jesus? Are you tracking with what I'm saying? There's a a major tension going on at this point in the the book of Acts. Can, Can the Gentile followers of Jesus be fully included into the fellowship do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow other, other Jewish customs like dietary laws and restrictions? And so th- these things are, are at work under the surface within our text. And, and what we see in the text is this movement from disunity 
to unity as, as the followers of Jesus are conformed to God and his purpose and his ways. And so this is the exhortation I want to give you, to give us, Vine Street Baptist Church this morning, is to be a united church. A church that is knit together in unity and love. Or as C.S. Lewis said, a church that is a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Will you be conformed to God's purposes and his heart to cultivate unity within the church? Or will you in pride, arrogance, hubris, not be conformed and try to stand in God's way? And make no mistake about it, those who try to stand in God's way will be crushed. They will fall in total decimation and failure and they will suffer the same fate that Satan and his demons suffer. That is, their heads will be stomped on by the Lord Jesus. So let me pray and then, and then we'll jump into our text. Lord, we, we come now before you and we ask that you would cause your word to come alive in us. Lord, would you knit us together in unity and love? Would you help us to become a hotbed of charity and humility? We desire to honor you in this way. So would you give us grace to walk together and press on together, having been brought together at the foot of the cross by the blood of the Lamb? We ask this in your holy, powerful and precious name, amen. Well, in lieu of what I, I said just a moment ago, I, I wanna walk through our text this morning and I want to give you two truths that, that should foster church unity and four ways that you can be conformed to God's heart, to God's purposes, so as to cultivate unity in the church. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna give you two truths that foster church unity and four ways that you can be conformed to God so as to produce and cultivate and work towards unity in the church. So that's where we're going. Acts 11, 1 to 18, our, our text this morning, is really the conclusion of the story that we were introduced to last week that Mike preached on in Acts chapter 10. So I just kind of want to remind you of where we are at and what is going on. Last week at the beginning of chapter 10, we were introduced to a new character in the book of Acts. You remember him. He, he's a Roman centurion, and his name is Cornelius. Luke describes uh, the, the events of, of Cornelius. One day when he was praying, he received a vision from God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him to send for, for a Simon who is called Peter in Joppa, which is a nearby town on the coast of the Mediterranean, to send for this, this Simon who is called Peter and bring him to him. And Cornelius obeys. He, he takes his servants and he sends them to Joppa to get Peter. And while this is going on, sort of simultaneously, Peter, the apostle Peter, is in Joppa, and he's hungry, and he goes on the top of the house, and he begins to pray, and he falls into some sort of trance, and he has a vision from God as well. And there's this sheet 
that descends out of heaven and on it is, is a, a myriad of animals, animals like at the beginning of creation, animals of all kinds, animals that are considered clean by the Jewish dietary laws, some animals that are considered unclean by the Jewish dietary laws. And then a, a, a booming voice comes to Peter. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter refuses. He says, by no means, Lord. Nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And then the voice resounds again from heaven and says, Peter, do not call common or unclean what God has made clean. And these these sort of things, this cycle of events happens three times, right? So the, the voice comes and tells him to kill and eat. Peter refuses, and then the voice corrects him. And this happens three times. When the, vi- the vision finished, as Peter was pondering and, and thoroughly perplexed about these things, at that very moment, the text says, Cornelius' servants arrive. And um, even though it was not custom for for Jews to go with the Gentiles, to associate with them, to enter with them. Peter understands in that moment that God was teaching him that no person is common or unclean. And so he goes with them without making distinction. They arrive at Cornelius' house. Cornelius falls at Peter's feet. Peter picks him up and says, I to him, a man, do not worship me. And then Cornelius tells him of the vision that he received, and Peter proceeds to proclaim to him the gospel, the same gospel message that they received and that they believed in. And while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were in the house, and they began speaking in tongues, and they began praising God. And Peter baptized them and welcomed them into the family of God and remained with them for some days. And this is where we, we pick up in our text. So if you would look with me at Acts 11, verses 1 to 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So apparently the report of what has happened at Cornelius' house has spread like wildfire throughout Judea. The apostles and the brothers hear the news, and the news that they hear is that the Gentiles also have received the word of God. Now, that's significant news. Up to this point in history, the, the Jews were the only ones who had received direct revelation from God. The Jews were the ones who had received the word of God. Romans 3, 2 says that they are the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so this, this news of Gentiles receiving the word of God, hearing and accepting God's word, is shocking news. But did you see what happens when Peter goes up to Jerusalem? The circumcision party, which are these extraordinarily conservative Jewish Christians, criticize him. They criticize Peter. Why? Not because he preached the gospel to Gentiles. That's not what the text says. Not even because the Gentiles received the, the Holy Spirit as he preached to them. Not, not, not also because he baptized them. They don't criticize him for these things. What do they say? 
you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Isn't that really interesting? I mean, it sounds exactly like what C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in the screw tape letters. You know, it's not about doctrines and these sort of high and important things. It's about these unessentials, the, the, the lesser things. Things like whether you say mass or holy communion. Things like food. These unessentials. These are the things that are working up the, the, the circumcision party. They're, they're more concerned about these things and more worked up about them than the fact that Gentiles were saved. Now, it's no doubt that, that Peter's actions have challenged the, the circumcision party, has, have challenged the way they think about God and what it means to be God's holy people. And just as we saw last week, you know, Peter was, was, he had to be convinced, he had to be conformed um, to, to God's heart and to God's ways. There had to be a change. So also now the, the circumcision party needs to be convinced, needs to be conformed to God to his heart, to his purposes, they need to be changed. So Peter receives this criticism from the circumcision party, and then he begins to explain to them what has happened. Look at verses four to 17, follow along with me. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrive, arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, you know, that, that's pretty astonishing. There being six brothers, it just adds to the, the witness that is going on, um, the witness of the events. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning and I remembered the word of the Lord. Now he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So in response to this criticism from the circumcision party, Peter simply gives them an orderly account of what has happened. He just retells the events that we, we looked at last week, that, that we just surveyed again. And he, he does this to illustrate the fact that everything that took place happened by the hand of God. 
Everything that happened was orchestrated by God's divine hand. God was the one who purposed these things to happen, not Peter. We can see God's divine hand in in four different progressions or four different acts, if you will. First, in verses four to 10, we see the, the divine vision. Do you see that? The divine vision in verses four to 10. Peter recounts his, his vision of this sheet being let down from heaven with all the animals on it and the voice that came to him telling him not to call common or unclean what God has made clean. So there's a divine vision in verses four to 10. And second, Peter receives a divine command, a, a direct command from God in verses 11 and 12. After the vision finishes, these men from Cornelius appear. They just happen to appear at that very moment. That's by God's sovereign hand. And then look at verse 12. This is, this is really important. Verse 12, the, the spirit tells Peter to go with them. If, if Peter was confused at all, no longer. The spirit says, hey, you go with these men. And so he receives a, a divine command. Divine vision, divine command. And third, we see the divine preparation in verses 13 and 14. Cornelius recounts his vision of how God spoke to him, saying that Peter would declare to him a message by which him and all his household would be saved. And so we see God divinely preparing Cornelius to receive the gospel message. Fourth and finally, in verses 15 through 17, there is the divine action. Do you see this? God pours out the Holy Spirit. God pours out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles as Peter proclaims the gospel message, the same gospel message. They received the same spirit that the Jews did at Pentecost. And and look at Peter's conclusion. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? In other words, everything that happened was by the hand of God. Do you see that? Are you tracking with me? Everything that took place happened by God's divine hand according to his divine purposes. Therefore, the circumcision party should not criticize Peter. Why? Because everything that took place happened by the hand of God. And so in criticizing Peter, they're actually found to be standing and opposed to God. And just as Peter was conformed, had to be changed, had to be convinced, the circumcision party also needs to be changed, conformed, and convinced to God's heart and to God's purposes. Peter's conclusion here of the retelling of events challenges the circumcision party. What will they do? What will they do? Will they stand in God's way? Or will they, like Peter, be conformed? Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Miraculously, they are conformed. They, they recognized, just as Peter did, that God had brought all this about. And they're speechless. They're stunned. 
They're, they're silent. Peter has provided irrefutable evidence that God was the one at work. And they recognize this. And then they honor God and they glorify God. They receive correction and then they confess that God has truly done this and that God has granted repentance that leads to life also to the Gentiles. So what we see here is this movement from disunity to unity. The circumcision party standing against Peter, being found in doing so to stand against God, receiving correction, being conformed, and finally being united together in the fellowship. The circumcision party turns away from the criticism. They, they recognize what God has done. And so the, the question for us is, is this. Will we, like Peter, like the circumcision party, will we be conformed to God's purposes and heart so as to cultivate unity? Or will we, in pride and arrogance, insist on our own way? Be so convinced of our own ways, our own thinking, how we live, and not be conformed and effectively stand in God's way. What will you do? What will you do? Uh, from this text, as I said, I want to give you two truths that foster church unity and four ways that you can be conformed to God's purposes and heart to work towards greater unity in the church. Okay, so again, two truths and, and four ways. The first truth is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, not so long ago, I was talking with an Egyptian man who owned a restaurant here in the States, and um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to fellowship with, with uh, people from that part of the world, but they're really phenomenal and extraordinary people, and I would encourage you to seek them out uh, because they're absolutely lovely. Um, anyways, th this Egyptian brother was telling me his story, and it's the story of how he came to Christ. So, so many years ago, when he was a young boy growing up in Egypt, his family went to a church there that was planted by missionaries. And the, the missionary family also had a young son. And this son was a little bit older than uh, the Egyptian boy. And one day, the, the missionary's son outgrew his clothes, and he, uh, his family wanted to donate all this stuff to the church and make it available to the community for those who were in need. And so the, the young Egyptian boy ended up with some of the, 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 missionary, uh, uh, the missionary's clothes. And... At one point, he was wearing this shirt that was owned by the missionary's son, and, and the missionary's son saw this, and he just pointed it out. He was like, hey, that's my old shirt. And uh, this really angered the Egyptian boy. I mean, really angered him. He, he felt ashamed, um, disgraced. You know, his family couldn't provide for, for you know, their own 
things, their own clothes. And he, he was so angered at this point that he, he swore off Christianity for good. He swore it off. He, he hated Christianity. He hated having to receive Christian charity. And he hated Christians. But his family still went to the church, you know, and they still wanted him to be involved, and they made him do things like memorize the Bible. And I, I'm not joking when I say this, but th- this Egyptian brother told me when I was at his restaurant that, that he as a young boy memorized most of the Bible. And I'm not talking like memorize the books of the Bible and knowing where things are um, or being able to point out things, but he like memorized the scriptures, able to recall books like Genesis from memory without looking at it. Um, just extraordinary, yeah. And so, so fast forward, th- this Egyptian boy, he, he hates Christianity, he hates Christians, but he has all this background, and he, he, he wants to make his own way. Fast forward in the, in the future, <clears throat> he gets involved in an illegal business with blood diamonds, and I don't know if you know much about this, um, but, but he gets filthy rich, right? And he has multiple houses, on different continents, and he has everything that he could ever want. Um, he can provide for himself. He doesn't have to receive anything from anyone. And one day, he, he was overseeing a shipment of these illegal diamonds in, in the Middle East, and he was hiding out in a cave with these two other brothers who were there helping him. And the, these two brothers, while they were in the cave, started fighting with one another. And they were, they, were, they were Muslim, and they started fighting about the Bible and about Christianity, you know, what, what Christianity believes, what the Bible says, and they were arguing. And finally, the Egyptian man was so fed up with their bickering, he said, you know what? You guys be quiet. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says, and I'm going to tell you what Christianity is all about. And, and because he had memorized all of this, you know, it was right there on hand. And so he proceeds to tell these guys from Genesis to Revelation the story of the Bible. And he proceeds to tell them the message of Christianity and the gospel. And while he is speaking, tears begin to fill his eyes. And he is cut to the heart. And when he's finished, he falls to his knees and he cries out to God in repentance and faith. And he's saved. Uh, could you believe that? I mean, that's just extraordinary, isn't it? He, he was proclaiming the gospel to these guys, these, these Muslim guys. He himself did not believe. He had sworn off Christianity. And as he proclaimed the gospel, he preached it to himself. And he was saved in that cave on that day. Why do I tell you this story? I tell it because I think it's, a, it's just one picture of the, the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. Every salvation, his testimony, your testimony, it, it is all the same. And this is a really good example of it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who was it that saved Cornelius? Was it Peter? No. Who saved the household? Was it Peter? No, it was God. God is the one who saves. If then God is the one who saves, God is the one who grants repentance that leads to life, and he does this to whom he pleases, then all who are saved by him should be brought together in unity. You tracking with what I'm saying? We're all in the same boat. You didn't earn favor with God. The Egyptian man did not earn favor with God. Cornelius did not. I did not. 
but God delighted to save us. It's all grace. And every salvation is nothing short of a miracle. And so it's really absurd and it's a disgrace that we would have the gall to treat anyone who's been saved by God poorly, to treat them differently. How do we have the gall to fracture ourselves, to foster bitterness towards someone God has saved and not be united? Do you see how absurd that is? If salvation belongs to the Lord? This truth is the soil. It's the seedbed from which church unity grows. So recognize it, cherish it, meditate on it. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. The Christian faith is one. The Christian faith is one. Did you see what Peter said in verse 17? Look at it again. If then God gave the same gift, the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The, the, the Gentile believers received the same gift as the Jewish believers. They're saved the same way by believing in the Lord Jesus. This is very much like what, what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The, the Christian faith is one. Do you see what I'm saying? One body of Christ, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Peter said as much in chapter 10, speaking of Jesus. He says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in Jesus, the same faith, the one faith, everyone, even Gentiles, are welcomed into God's plan of salvation. And they receive the same benefits of the one Christian faith. They're gifted the same spirit. Uh, th this oneness of, of the Christian faith, that, that there is Christianity, not Christianities, is, is the basis for Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4 that, that we just read. Saying, I, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, the oneness of the Christian faith grounds the unity that he exhorts the, the church to in Ephesians 4. And so we see here in our text this, this second truth that should foster unity among the fellowship. Salvation belongs to the Lord 
And there is only one Christian faith. The Christian faith is one. Therefore, there, there cannot, there should not ever be factions and divisions among us, the people of God. And these truths are the soil, the seedbed from which church unity grows. As I said, recognize that. Hold on to them, cling to them, cherish them, meditate on them. I think it's pretty plain that, that church unity is a very big deal. Um, it's plain from the, the two truths that we, we have already talked about. Um, and it's plain that, that church disunity is a disgrace because it, it denies, it taints the very nature of our salvation, of the gospel, of the work of Jesus, of the faith, and of God himself. And so I, I want to be practical and I want to give you four ways that, that you can be conformed, like Peter, like the circumcision party, you can be conformed to God and work towards greater unity in the church. Um, and I, I just want to say the, these four points of application um, come from my, my pastor back in Texas when I was there at that church I and him and a group of other brothers who aspired to the ministry, we would meet weekly and we would actually go over the sermon text that, that he would be preaching on the, the following week. And we would specifically discuss application. And we, so we sort of came up with these points and then he kind of fine-tuned them and he actually preached on them. And I, I just say this to say they're not 100% original to me, but um, I think they're very helpful. So, so four ways that you can be conformed to God so as to cultivate unity in our church. First, you should be conformed to God's truth. You should be conformed to God's truth. If God says something is true, you should lay aside, you should give up any other deferring convictions, opinions. If God has said something is true, you should believe it. You should hold to that. These, these Jewish background believers and Peter had very strong convictions. I mean, we can see that in our text. And moreover, th their convictions even came from God-given revelation from the Bible. I mean, they, they were so convinced of what they believed that Peter himself disobeyed God. Did you see that? The voice comes from heaven. Peter, kill and eat. And he disobeys by no means. I won't do that. That's against what we believe. And so the, the question for you is this. Do, do you have values? Do you have principles, convictions, maybe even some that come from the Bible that not even God could convince you otherwise? Uh, let me make it really clear. I'm not talking about things like the doctrine that Jesus was fully God and fully human. I'm not talking about doctrines like the fact that, that Jesus rose from the dead or, or the fact that, that God is triune. I'm talking about lesser things, things like what, what screw tape told Wormwood are an admirable ground for stirring up malice in the church. Things like whether you like to say mass or holy communion, things like food and other unessentials. I'm talking about these things. Convictions like that. And, and here's what is really important to understand. The, the Bible is inerrant and it's infallible and it's true. 
And even so, we as, as humans can draw wrong conclusions from it. We can read it wrong. We, we, we can mess up our interpretations of it. Our interpretations are not inerrant or infallible. And so we, we, we need to always have this posture of submission to God's truth, to God's word. We need to have this, this posture of always willing to be corrected by God's word. I, 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 just let me tell you, you know, <clears throat> you don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I, we're not there yet. And so we need this, this sort of posture of submission, humility, And this will help to cultivate unity in our church. And I also just want to add, you know, the way that disunity is resolved within the, the fellowship, within the church, is not by one party being conformed to another party. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not about winning your brother to yourself. Instead, both parties should be conformed to God. We should go to God. It's not about winning to your side, it's, it's about let's submit to, to God. And so do these things. Put, put, put yourself under the, the submission of God's word and be willing to be corrected by it. Do this and it will help to cultivate unity. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You should be conformed to God's heart for all people. You should be conformed to God's heart for all people. In our text, we see that, that God has included the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. Last week, Mike honed in on, on the fact that, that God is not a God of partiality. And we should be the same. We should not show partiality in the church. James, in his epistle, he, he says this. He writes, My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who fares the, wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And he says a few verses later, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We should not show partiality in the church. God is not a God of partiality. We should not be violently attached to some party within the church. We should not show partiality concerning skin color. Whether you're, you're black, white, yellow, red, it does not matter. We should not show partiality concerning age. You're six months old, 15 years old, 93 years old. We should not show partiality concerning wealth. Whether you're rich, poor, middle class. We should not show partiality concerning status. Someone's a mayor, someone's a citizen. Someone's a professor, someone's a student. We should not show partiality concerning gender, male, female. No, we are all the same in Christ. So be conformed to God's heart for all people. 
and this will cultivate unity in the church. Third, you should be conformed to God's desire for repentance. You should be conformed to God's desire for repentance. In our text, we see the circumcision party coming around and glorifying God that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Do you rejoice and glorify God when someone repents? Do do you rejoice? Do you celebrate? Or perhaps is there a brother and sister in the church that you actually don't want to see repent? Maybe because they wronged you. You want to just you really just want to see them get what's coming to them? Or or even outside the church. Someone that, that you really kind of don't want to see repent. Maybe it's your family. <clears throat> Treated you very poorly. I just want to, you know, point out that, that this kind of heart of of not wanting to, to see someone repent, not celebrating when when people do repent is, is a bad heart. And we should not have it. That should not be in the church. It does not match God's heart. Second Peter 3 9 says this The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We as a church, as a body, should rejoice celebrate repentance, and we should mourn and we should grieve unrepentance. If we share in this together, we will cultivate unity in our church. How? Because if if you're the kind of person that yearns to see repentance, then you will be a kind person. Do you understand that? You'll be kind to all people, even to your enemies, even to, to those who hate you, even, even to those who wish ill will against you and do things to harm you, you will be kind. You will patiently endure evil, hoping that, that they will repent and entrusting yourself to God just as Jesus did, understanding that God will repay everything and make all things right on the final day. Don't be like Jonah. Jonah. Who, who, who was furious that the, the Ninevites repented. But, but share in God's heart. Be conformed to God's desire and outlook on repentance, and this will cultivate unity in the church. Fourth and finally, you should be conformed to God's mission. Be conformed to God's mission. And so we, we have come to a major turning point in the book of Acts. Um, to the Gentiles also, God has re- granted repentance that leads to life. The gospel has been spreading. The gospel has been breaking boundaries. It's gone from Jerusalem to Samaria, and now it's about to go to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome. We, as the people of God, should be about the mission of God. I just want to ask, what are you living your life for? Is it for the spreading of God's kingdom? For God's mission in Christ? Or is it for something like the American dream? Uh, I want you to hear me rightly. I'm not saying that having the house and the picket fence is wrong. Those things aren't wrong. 
Um, what I am saying is that your life is working towards something. You spend time, you spend energy, you spend money to accomplish something. You make sacrifices for something in your life. It's, it's human nature. You are geared towards one thing, and I'm asking, what is that thing? Is it money? Is it yourself? Or is it the mission of God? The kingdom of God? Whatever you're about in your life, and you can be about a lot of things, it should be wrapped up in the mission of God. If we as a church are united in this, it will produce a a, a unity, a oneness, because we're all headed in the same direction. So conform yourselves to God's mission, and this will also cultivate unity in the church. So what, what will you do? Will you be conformed to, to God's purposes and heart so as to work towards cultivate unity in this church? Or will you, in, in, in pride and arrogance, hubris, insistence on your own way, not be conformed and effectively stand against God? And remember, Those who stand against God will be crushed. They will be crushed. Those who who finally do not repent will be crushed. Those who who sow disunity in the fellowship in the people of God will suffer the same fate that Satan and his demons suffer. And on the last day, the Lord Jesus will stomp on their heads. He will trample them underfoot. What will you do? Recognize from this text these two truths that that produce unity, that that are the soil from which church unity grows. Meditate on them, cherish them, and, and be conformed to God. Be conformed to God's truth. Submit to his word. Be be conformed to God's heart for all people, to, to his desire for all to repent, and to God's mission. If we as Vine Street Baptist Church make ourselves about these things, I'm sure that we will become more and more a positive hotbed of charity, humility, and unity. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your precious word. We recognize what a gift it is that we can read your word aloud. Lord, we do desire to have a posture of submission to your truth. We desire to be conformed to your heart, to your ways, to your purposes. We desire as a church to be knit together in love and unity, to be one. And so would you help us to that end? By your word, by your spirit. on the, 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 the basis of the blood of the Lamb. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.